0: Well, I have to confess to you, it was a traumatic time in my life as a first grader. Yeah, first grader. I went to grade school and we were doing some kind of a craft thing. And we had this screen and we had a, I think it was an oak leaf, and we were doing some with a brush of some sort going across the screen. And I had somehow done my Michelangelo sweep. And the whole back wall had paint blotches all over it. Thus, my teacher wanted to have a visit with me about my career while the rest of the kids got to enjoy time and recess out on the playground. And uh, that was about the beginning of my career and about the end of it, if you please. And there was a lot of pressure at that point put on this little first grader uh, who uh, had uh, done this thing, and I was scared as a teacher kept bearing my guilt down on me, making me sit there and try to figure out how I was going to get that paint off the wall. I mean, it was way up there on the wall as well. And uh, so she was bearing the wrongdoing down on me, as well as trying to have me figure out a way to get it off. And then there was a fear of punishment that might also follow this act. Well, I want to tell you, there was great relief in my heart. There really was when finally I was set free from all that, forgiven for that. And when I walked home, I walked home with lots of jubilant steps, and there was joy and gladness in my heart, knowing that the janitor was my substitute. He was the guy who was going to figure out how to get that paint off of the back wall. So today, I stay away from painting, okay? <laughs> But something about that little experience, though, is captured by David here in Psalm 51, except in a major way, if you please, as he writes this psalm. And when one reads this psalm, he meets a man that is heavily weighed down, or was heavily weighed down by his wrongdoing and who is earnestly seeking forgiveness and restoration so he once again can know the joy of salvation. And King David would teach you and me in Psalm 51 how to live the forgiven life. not that good? This is such a rich psalm. He would teach us on how to live the forgiven life. Just a little bit of the background. Most of you already know it, but let me just refresh that in your mind. In the Hebrew Bible, the subscript in Psalm 51 really is actually the first verse where it says there, for the choir director, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. So that's actually the first verse in the Hebrew Bible there. And David's fall with Bathsheba is recorded for us in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. We're not going to go back there and read that. But instead of leading his men out to, battle, to the battlefield, you might remember, he chose to have a leisure time at home. And as he was doing so, he was up on the, in his palace there, overlooking all of Jerusalem. And he sees this very, very beautiful woman. And she's on top of her house, evidently. And the way they did it, her. she was taking a bath, and he sees all that. And boy, he kept looking at what he was seeing. And as a result of that, he thought, you know, I desire that beautiful woman. And so he sent, and because he was king, he got what he desired. You know that, of course. And so Bathsheba came to him. They had sex, and lo and behold, she became pregnant. But King David had a plan. It's funny about sin. We always have a plan. He called Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, back home from the battlefront. And he said, look, you need to go down and just enjoy your wife. And Uriah says, I can't do that. In fact, the scripture says, he said, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Now, how is David going to cover up his sin? Well, he writes a note And he sends it with Uriah to give to Joab, the commander of the armies. And that note says, okay, Joab, you take Uriah, put him in the the heatest or the the hottest part of the battle, and then retreat from him and let the enemy kill him. In essence, he commits murder. He sets him up to be murdered. Well, when the king gets word that Uriah has been killed, he waits until Bathsheba finishes her mourning for the loss of her husband and then he calls her to himself and he takes her as his wife and then she bore him a son the Bible says this though the Bible says but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord as I read that I thought I wonder how often God says that to me says that about me how often might he say that about you? But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Perhaps about a year had gone by. Give me take a little bit. David lived with his guilty conscience even though he thought he had covered up his sin and gotten away with it. He shares with us his great internal turmoil in Psalm 32. And you need to be aware of that. Psalm 32 is David writing his testimony of what he went through for approximately a year's time. Then God did a special and wonderful thing. He sent his prophet Nathan to confront the king. And he tells about the great injustice which he had done in his kingdom. He says, a very rich man, he said, with lots, this is what Nathan told David, a very rich man with lots of flocks and herds had taken a very poor man's only little ewe lamb in order to feed a wayfarer who had come to him. And you know what, when King David heard that, and he thought it was a real story, he thought this actually happened. He was so burned up with a great wrong and his anger, he said against that man, he told Nathan, As the Lord lives, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. And you recall what Nathan the prophet said to to David, Thou, thou art the man, thou art art the man well god sending the prophet nathan david was a gracious act i hope you see that that was a gracious act that god did before david could express full and complete forgiveness as well as cleansing and restoration which would bring back his joy and fellowship god's law had to do its work the law of god always has to do its work It's by the law that the knowledge of sin comes to you and me. Because God says, Here are my righteous standards. By the way, no wonder the culture wants to do away with the righteous standards, that anything goes. Because if God's law does not do its work and bring the guilt, there can be no salvation. And that's exactly what Satan wants. It's exactly what he wants. So, Nathan had to confront David with his sin. You know, a most serious thing often takes place today. There are a lot of people that are praying a prayer to get saved that have never really been confronted with their sinfulness before a holy God. You know the problem with that? How can a person get saved? How can a person need a, a, a savior if they don't realize their lost condition? And that's one of the hardest things to do is confront somebody with their sin, is it not? But that's the grace of God when he sends you and me out to do exactly that. That they can realize that they are, they're their terrible condition before a holy God and they need to confess their sin, repent from it, and turn to God. By the way, though, this is also an offense that believers are guilty of committing. And that is this. Christians try to live their lives while they hang on to their sin, do they not? They're sorry for their sins, but not repentant. They dread the consequences of their sins, how they feel, their remorse, their guilt, and the reactions that come from their actions, but there's no turning from their sins. They're quick to say, I'm sorry to God. That's a word that's overused, isn't it? I'm sorry, God. And yet, really, there's no repentance in that statement. Rarely is it followed by changed behavior. They cannot cannot say with David, how blessed, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That comes, by the way, from Psalm 32, which also was his testimony after he got right with the Lord. So I think we're often guilty of a lot of deceitful repentance, saying things, but really there's no change in our actions, our thinking, our heart. As we come then to Psalm 51, David shares his experience with us and teaches you and me how to live the forgiven life. It is a beautiful, beautiful psalm, how to live the forgiven life. And we begin in your outline with that one word, recognize recognize i've already stressed that god sent nathan to king david because the law had to do its work before grace could do its work in his life in psalm 51 the first five verses this is brought out in two different ways, and i want you to see that it's brought out in two different areas david recognizes god's nature it starts there If you have a faulty concept about God, you're going to have a hard, hard, very difficult time coming to genuine repentance. He recognizes God's nature. And secondly, he recognizes his own nature. Living the forgiven life must begin here. I recognize God's nature and I recognize my nature. So let's look at God's nature. In the first four verses, God's nature, we recognize it as being gracious. The worship team focused this morning on grace. Remember Alex, how many of us love grace? He says in verse 1, Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, According to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgressions. That's grace. That's recognizing God's nature. Alexander McLaren says, the psalm begins with at once grasping the character of God as the sole ground of hope. Recognizing the character of God is the sole grounds of your and my hope. Either we cover our sins, we cover our sins Or gracious God covers our sins. And when he covers them, he blots them out. He takes them away because of his son and what he did at the cross. Paul captured this for us in Ephesians chapter 2. You know that portion. There's what it says. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by Grace you have been saved, recognizing god 's character as being gracious, but notice secondly, recognizing god 's character or nature as being just you know that 's where the masses of people that are unsaved that 's where they are they refuse to recognize god 's nature as being just look at verse 4 with me in psalm 51 this is a verse i've asked you to mark before in your bibles i think it's one of the greatest uh, explanations uh, of repentance genuine repentance but notice how it recognizes god's character as being just against you you only i have sinned And done what is evil in your sight. And notice what he says. So that you are justified when you speak. And blameless when you judge. Wow. What a definition of genuine repentance. So that you are justified when you speak about my situation. That I am a sinner. And blameless When you judge, Lord, if you sent me into hell, I deserve to go there. That's what brought me to saving faith. When I realized this is the interpretation, or rather rather this is the the definition of genuine repentance, that I said, God, I'm the sinner and I deserve hell. And you are perfectly just if you would send me there. Against thee, the only, I have sinned, and done what is evil in thy sight. So that thou art justified when thou dost speak, and blameless when thou dost judge. Well, listen, when I deny, and when I excuse my sin, I justify myself and accuse God of being the unrighteous one. Did you get that? When I don't agree with God, I'm justifying myself and saying, God, you are unjust. By the way, this was job's one sin the righteous man job did you know that this is his sin before god then the lord answered job out of the storm and said will you really annul my judgment will you condemn me that you may be justified and that's what every unsaved person does hey i'm okay god i'm not that bad I try hard. And what does God say? There's none righteous. No, not one. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Try your best. God says, this is my declaration, and I am perfectly just in it. And until we come to the place of acknowledging that, and that whatever God's judgment is upon our life, He is perfectly right and just to bring that upon us, you will not get saved. So recognize God's nature as being gracious, but also as being just. It all starts here. If I'm going to live the forgiven life and experience the joy of salvation, I must recognize and acknowledge those two things. He is absolutely just. What he says about me is 100% correct. I am the guilty sinner before holy God and deserve judgment. And by the way, this is hard for Christians. It's hard for you and me who are redeemed. I mean, day and day out, the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and lives. And what do we do? We tend to, to justify ourselves. We tend to deny what he's saying. We tend to deal with our sin. And I cannot excuse or ignore my sin. We must say, I must acknowledge it and plead his grace and out of his loving kindness and compassion, know that he will forgive, he will cleanse, he will restore me, filling me with the joy of salvation. But then also, I must recognize my nature. I must recognize my nature. Notice verses 1 and 2, I must recognize my nature as being exceedingly sinful. I must recognize my nature as being exceedingly sinful. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. David used three different words to describe his sinful condition. Transgressions. Transgressions. That emphasizes our rebellion against God. We're in rebellion against him. That's what he says in scripture. David cries out, according to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgressions. He views his rebellious acts like a mass of debts, like a dark cloud. I must view my wrongdoing as an act of rebellion against God. Boy, this is hard. No wonder sinners don't get saved. They don't want to go there. They refuse to go there. Unless the Holy Spirit does a work in their heart and life, they'll never go there because of their pride. Then he uses the word iniquity. In verse 2, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. That is a twisting, a perverting of God's standards. Boy, are we not seeing that in an explosion in this culture right now. A twisting and a perverting of God's righteous standard. Listen, the world will keep on passing laws to condone its sin. Are you aware of that? It will keep on passing laws to condone its sin. And that's where the church needs to be holy and righteous and faithful no matter what the cost is. Otherwise, you're going to have a mass of people that were going to be swept right into an eternal damnation in hell. And not only that, God is withholding his judgment. There comes a time, as you know, when he says, that's it. I will now pour my wrath out upon this culture. And he will do that. And we sense we're right at the door. But it's a twisting. The Iniquity is a twisting, a perverting of God's righteous standards. We say, for example, of the the homosexual, homosexual, the lesbian, that, that they pervert and twist normal sexual behavior. And dear ones, they do, and we'll keep right on stating that from this pulpit, from Scripture, no matter what the price tag comes my way or your way. God says to us that we pervert and twist his standards when we violate them. And David had perverted his righteous standards. Iniquity is like looking at oneself in one of those warped mirrors at a at a carnival. That's what it's like. When David asked God to wash him thoroughly from iniquity, it means a needing, uh, not merely a rinsing to get out what is there. I think of a mechanic who works all day on engines. And you look at their hands, how callous they are, and cracked they are, and there's grease and oil in there, and no matter what you you can't get it all out, you know, that's kind of a picture of what you have here in iniquity. And then he uses, number thirdly, sin. Sin means missing the mark or goal intended by God. And cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse has reference, for example, to leprosy in the Old Testament. So David uses all three terms for his wrongdoing so as to underscore what a terrible thing sin is. By the way, you don't forsake it until you realize that, until you get to that place, do you? No, we love our sin. We love the pleasure that is in sin for that season, do we not? And so he underscores it using those three Terms his owned, He owns his sin before his God who is just and gracious. This is the way to live the forgiven life, David says. From David's prior experience of failing to acknowledge his sin, he understood the words of Proverbs 28, 13. You know what it says there? He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. But David even goes further. Not only does he recognize his nature as being exceedingly sinful, but secondly, as being absolutely against God. As being absolutely against God in his nature. Look again at verse 4. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Though David had sinned against Uriah, he had sinned against Bathsheba, He had sinned against his own household. He had sinned against the nation of Israel. His foremost sin was against God. It always moves up to God. We are made for his glory. And what does it say? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All the law and the prophets hang on the first and second... Uh, greatest of all commandments thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart all thy soul all thy mind all thy body all thy strength and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself and so he sees and acknowledges his own nature as being absolutely against God His sin was and then thirdly as being permeated through and through by sin his nature was permeated through and through by sin look at verse 5 amazing verse verse 5 in the Old Testament there behold I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me how interesting you see the sin nature is passed on through Adam and even in conception he received that sin nature and then after he was born he chose to sin willfully in all realms, words, actions, and uh, motives, and so forth. And so he recognizes his own nature as being exceedingly sinful, as being absolutely against God, and being permeated through and through by sin. So how can you and I live this forgiven life and know the joy of salvation? Dear ones, it has to begin with our recognizing God's nature and recognizing our own nature as well. Living the forgiven life begins then with recognizing, but secondly, we must repent. We must repent. Remember the foundation of genuine repentance is recognizing God's nature as well as my own sinful nature. So we started there. But this is essential in agreeing with God. If I'm going to agree with God, I have to recognize his nature. I've got to recognize my nature. This has to take place before we're ever going to turn from our sin and pursue God and his righteous ways. So repent. Number A, come to God for cleansing. Come to him. Do you hear that? You know how I got saved? The Holy Spirit drew me. And I chose by his work in my heart to come to him. I came to him. I made a conscious response saying, I am the sinner. You are holy and just in what you should do for me. But I want to be forgiven. I want to be cleansed. I want to have eternal life. You must make that consciousness of coming to God for cleansing. For how? Number one, by seeking his truth in your innermost being. Wow. Talk about a day where there's not truth where lies and falsehood and deception is everywhere, including in religion. Look at verse 6. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. You know, only God can give you his wisdom. There is a way that seems right to man, but the ways there are are death. Death. The natural man or the unsaved man, he doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God. But the Holy Spirit reveals them. That's what it says in First Corinthians chapter 2. He will make me to know wisdom, it says here. So behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. That's a beautiful promise from God. That he would do that work in your and my life, as he did it in David's life. If he did it for him, dear ones, he'll do it for you and he'll do it for me as well. If we will only come to God by seeking cleansing, by seeking his truth in our innermost being. Yielding ourselves. Yielding ourselves to that still, small voice of God, the Holy Spirit working within us. Number two, come to God for cleansing by seeking his cleansing. By seeking it. You you have to desire want that. Look at verses 7 through 9. He says, David says, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Now under the Old Testament law and how God cleansed them. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. My. How we desire. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And so come to God for cleansing by seeking his cleansing. If we are not controlled by God's truth and we are not yielding ourselves to the Holy Spirit, our confession will be an act of deception and we'll not experience this cleansing that we really want. 1 John 1.9 says, you know that verse, many of you. If we confess our sins, that is, agree with God. That's Psalm 51, 4. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. And I love it. What to say? And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My, how I need that. I don't know all my sins. Sins of omissions? Sins of commissions? Have I loved the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, soul, body, and strength? Are you kidding? No. But God says, Bill, when you come to me with a genuine heart of confession like this, I cleanse you from all, all unrighteousness. What a beautiful thing the salvation is. What a joy to walk knowing that God has done that. And then verse 7, he says, purify Purge. You know, the root word, that's the root word for sin. You know what he's saying? He's saying, "Descend me. Isn't that good? Purify me. Descend me. Hyssop was a small bush that was used for applying the blood on the doorposts and the lentils uh, for, so the death angel would pass over the Israelites, remember, when they left Egypt. It's also it was used for cleansing a person who had leprosy and was healed from it. It was also used for somebody who had touched and defiled themselves by touching a dead body. And they had used this hyssop in order to put the clean water upon them to declare them before God, cleansed. He says wash. That's a word that refers to a vigorous rubbing, pounding, stamping. David saw and experienced his sin as being a great stain deep within him. So terrible was this stain that only God could remove it. Wow. Boy, to see ourselves before God in that way. But what does God say? Isaiah 118, come now. That's God saying that to you and me. Come now, he says. And let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet... They will be as white as snow. And David mentions that in Psalm 51. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. You know, I think about back there in the first grade when I got paint splattered all over that wall. You know what the janitor did? He took new paint and painted over all that. And God says, I not only paint over it, I take your sin away. I cast it behind me, in the, as far as east is from the west, I cast it in the deepest part of the sea, and put a sign up saying, "No fishing there." Not that good. That's our God. How gracious, how merciful, how compassionate He is. And then verse eight, He says, "Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which Thou hast broken rejoice." What a prayer. When Nathan brought God's word to David, he had already been dealing with his heavy guilt for about a year. I mentioned that. But Nathan's words did their work and crushed David. Now he was dealing directly with God. To hear God's words say he was forgiven, restored, would fill him with joy and gladness. In fact, Leupold writes about this, David asks that God may do away with his sins so that they are so completely disposed of as is the writing on a slate that has been gone over with a wet sponge. Just all evidence is gone. So repent, come to God for cleansing. But be, come to God in contrition you must come to God in contrition look at verses 16 and 17 for you do not delight in sacrifices otherwise I would give it you are not pleased with burnt offering the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and a contrite heart O God you will not despise what a wonderful statement what a great truth. Come to God in contrition. In verse 16, he speaks about sacrifices and offerings. Did you know that in the Mosaic law, there was no sacrifice? There was no offering for committing murder and adultery. The law demanded death. But God who paid the price of the law through his son there on the cross, could cleanse David and restore David. How wonderful this salvation and this provision is. Come to God in contrition. And then verse 17, The reason we so easily and willingly sin repeatedly is because we don't experience a broken and a contrite heart. We don't let God do his work in our heart. We hardly see sin as against God. And what such sin does... The ultimate sacrifice and offering, as you know, was his son. And the terrible, terrible price that he had to pay. Oh, that God would help us in a culture that is absolutely rotten. That he would help us to see what sin is before holy God. And therefore would live these pure, righteous, forgiven, cleansed lives that are lives of power. Used in the hands of God. I ask a question when I come to Psalm 51 that you need to write maybe in Psalm 51 and answer yourself. Are you, are you a King Saul or a King David? God confronted Saul with his sin, but there wasn't a broken and a contrite heart He confronted David, King David, with his sin, and he had that broken and contrite. I love what it says there. He is a man after God's own heart. That's what I want to be. That's what you want to be as well, I trust genuine repentance necessitates that i come to god and i honestly seek his truth in my innermost being it necessitates that i genuinely seek his cleansing and therefore i come to him with a broken and contrite heart because of my sin jesus put it this way blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted and then he had a half brother who also wrote some things about this James, the half-brother of Jesus. And he said, draw near to God. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. James chapter 4. Now I know that can be applied to the unsaved person who should come that way, but I also know it relates to the saved person who is to come to the Lord that way as well. So we begin with recognize. How to live the forgiven life? Recognize God's nature. Recognize your nature. And then repent. How so? By coming to God for cleansing and by coming to God in contrition. But now comes revival. Now comes revival. This is what God wants to do. And when we come uh, recognize those first two main points and act upon them, this is what God wants to bring revival to your my heart. First of all, notice David's pleas in verses 10 through 15. David's pleas. First, a plea for a clean heart and a steadfast spirit. Verse 10. A plea for a clean heart and a steadfast spirit. Verse 10 says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. One of my favorite verses is 2 Corinthians 1.12. That's a good verse to know. 2 Corinthians 1.12 For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience. So now we're dealing with a conscience. Our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness, in holiness and godly sincerity, we have conducted ourselves, not, I'm sorry, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. That's a good verse. That in holiness and godly sincerity, my conscience says that in holiness and godly sincerity, I am living my life today as I'm supposed to live it, both before you and in the world. That's a beautiful verse. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. You got promises from God, then let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Boy, a world that does not fear that fear God, believers, save people, redeem people, ought to have a reverence for God and perfect holiness in that fear of God. And so, having those promises, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. For example, the clean heart, you don't want to drink water out of a muddy pond. You want flowing water, a walk with the Lord, and a pure heart, and a steadfast spirit. I think about Timothy, who is steadfast. And then I think about Demas, who, loving this present world, deserted Paul and went to Thessalonica, I believe it was, or Dalmatia. So, David's plea, a plea for a clean heart and a steadfast spirit. Secondly, a plea for the Holy Spirit's continued presence. A plea for the Holy Spirit's continued presence. Verse 11. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Now listen, I know, in the New Testament, the genuinely saved person never loses the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. The Bible clearly teaches that. But it does teach that the Holy Spirit can be grieved. It teaches that he can be quenched. He can be there and not be able to do any work in you whatsoever as far as empowering you because of sin that is short-circuiting that power. Because we won't respond to the working in our life. But in David's time, Under the law, the Holy Spirit came upon certain individuals for certain responsibilities or ministries. As the king, the Holy Spirit came upon King Saul, for example. But then it says the Spirit left him when he got into sin and wouldn't have a contrite heart. Now David's concerned about that. Oh God, I've seen you upon my life, I've gone out to war and won victories, you have blessed me, and I don't want to lose that blessing. I don't want to lose that as King Saul did, for example, in Psalm 32. Well, we'll get to that in just a minute. And so it's a plea regarding the possible disqualification from serving God. It's a reference to God's highest calling. I think of the high call that he gave to the nation of Israel. And yet, Israel in the wilderness failed all ten of God's tests for her. Failed all ten. And God could not use her because of that. And then the Apostle Paul. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 9. Don't lose your place there. But turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul was concerned about this, as you and I need to also be concerned about this. A plea for the Holy Spirit's continued presence, or maybe in your and my case, his continued empowerment and blessing, if you please. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says in verse 24 to the end of this chapter, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? But only one receives the prize. Run then in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, Paul says, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline, I give myself a black eye in my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. That word disqualified literally means a cracked pot. I won't become a cracked pot. I'm a vessel for the highest purpose, but if it drops off the, off the shelf and cracks, it still has a purpose, but not that high purpose anymore. That was his concern. He wasn't worried about losing his salvation. He was worried about being in such a state that the Holy Spirit could not wonderfully, mightily use him. Well, David is concerned similarly here in this plea. Number three, David's plea, a plea for restored joy And a willing spirit. A plea for restored joy and a willing spirit. Verse 12 Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. In Psalm 32, he writes these. Remember, that's again his testimony as well of this experience. He said, Thou art my hiding place, Thou dost preserve me from trouble. Thou dost surround me with songs of deliverance. Isn't that beautiful? Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, he says. You righteous ones, and shout for joy all you who are upright in heart. This guy talked about the joy of the Lord in his heart. Nehemiah verse, chapter 8 verse 10, The joy of the Lord is your strength. David wanted that joy back. Many, many a saved many, many a Christian needs to get back to that place to know that you walk with the joy of the Lord daily experiencing that in your life Colossians 3.16 Paul says let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing singing with thankfulness in your hearts to god i hope there's a song of joy in your heart and that's what paul i'm sorry what david longed for and pled god to do philippians 4 verse 4 rejoice in the lord always again he says i say rejoice my a plea for restored joy as well as a willing spirit ask god to give you that oh god give me a willing spirit To listen to you, to respond to you, to walk in obedience as you guide me to do that. Because it is a battle. And we need his encouragement and empowerment and strength. Number four, a plea for deliverance from blood guiltiness. A plea for deliverance from blood guiltiness. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. The God of my salvation, then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. You know, David had murdered Uriah, even though he didn't uh, cast the spear or arrow. He even had Uriah carry the note that uh, would cause him to be killed. Joab was told to place Uriah in the hottest part of the battle, withdraw from him, then the enemy would kill him, and that's exactly what happened. As I mentioned, the Mosaic Law had no provision for this, to cover this sin of murder or adultery. It demanded the death penalty. But I'm reminded of another murderer that required the death penalty as well. He was standing there as Stephen was being stoned. He was... Convinced to go after all those people called Christians that had put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a murderer. And listen to his testimony he gives later after his conversion. He said it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Everybody listen, everybody accept this. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Wow, good. Among whom I am foremost of all. You think you're bad? You think you've done terrible things? And some people, they are. That's what they are. They say, it's so terrible, God could never forgive me. Paul says, wait a minute, guys. I was the worst of it all. The worst of the worst. Why did he save me? Yet for this reason, I found mercy. So that in me, as a foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience. As an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Isn't that good? He says, look at me. God is. Can and will save you if you come with a repentant heart and turn to him seeking him to do so. Then we come number B regarding revival David's pleas and now David's prayer David's prayer verses eighteen to nineteen by your favor, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in righteous sacrifices. In burnt offering and whole burnt offering, then young bulls will be offered on your altar. David's prayer. Listen, David's sin had affected Jerusalem. If you don't believe that, go to his son Solomon. It split the kingdom. David's sin affected Jerusalem, David's sin affected the nation. And may I also add, David's sin affected his family. Wow, it affected his family. His newborn baby would die. Amnon would die. Tamar would be violated. Absalom would die and rebel against David and the kingdom. David's prayer. He said, oh God, if you'll forgive me, if you'll restore the joy of my salvation, if you'll completely cleanse me from my sin, then by your favor, do good to Zion. Do good to Jerusalem. Bless it, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices of your people and burn offerings. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar because they'll see that you are a merciful and a compassionate God. Let me give some thoughts to meditate on. You don't have these in your notes, but let me give you some thoughts to meditate on. What did David give up by refusing to confess his sin? As you go through this Chapter, you'll see that. What did David give up by refusing for a year to confess his sin? First, good health. Gave up good health. Look at verse 8. Make me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. A lot of problems, health problems, come because of unconfessed, forsaken sin. In Psalm 32, he puts it this way When I kept silent about my sin, My body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, thy hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. What a graphic picture of the physical effects on a person's life because of sin. What else did he give up? A clean heart and a steadfast spirit. He gave up a clean heart and a steadfast spirit. That's why in verse 10 he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Thirdly, possible disqualification from serving God in the highest means that God planned for him. Do not cast away from your presence me, do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. He gave away the possibility of that highest position that God planned. Number six, or number, I'm sorry, number four, the joy of salvation the joy of salvation verse 12 restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit number five a powerful a powerful godly life that convicts and restores others now is that worth having Do you want God to use you to convict, for example, and change people in your family and encourage them to walk with God or maybe where you work or you go to school or people in your neighborhood? Do you want God to use you? Listen, he gave up a powerful, godly life that convicts and restores others. Look at verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. He gave that up. Boy, a lot of believers, they don't have the power of God working in their life. No wonder people don't get saved. No wonder lives aren't changed in their family if they don't have this. Number six, a channel through which God could bless his people. A channel through which God could bless his people. Again, verses 18 and 19, by your favor, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. And he talks about the sacrifices being offered. He wanted to be a channel through which God could bless his people. That was given up for a year. That was lost. Number seven, rich fellowship in his walk with God verse 17 the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart oh God you will not despise he gave all that up dear ones you look at that and say God help me not to give that up help me to keep close accounts with you in my daily walk with you My thought life, the words that come out of my mouth, my actions or inactions, help me not to give all that up. But another conclusion, thought to meditate on. How did David genuinely confess and repent of his sins? How did he genuinely confess and repent of his sins? Number one, he received godly reproof, didn't he? Don't turn down godly reproof. The prophet Nathan came to him. By the way, consider King Asa. Was not God merciful to send the prophet to him? And what did he do? He was so angry he imprisoned the prophet. We can do that, can't we? Rejecting those that God sends to help us get back on track with him. He received godly reproof. Secondly, he came to God with his sin. Don't fight that. You know, and sometimes you have to say, God, I need help. I love my sin. Can you say that? Can you be that honest say, God, I love my sin. There's pleasure in it for a while, but yet I'm still dealing with the guilt as well. God, I love my sin. Help me with this issue. And let the body of Christ and the elders as well help one another. So he came to God with his sin. Verse 1. Number 3, he called his sin, sin. Are you doing that? Am I doing that? He called his sin, sin, confessing it as such. Verse 3. Actually, 1 through 3. Number 4, he fully acknowledged his sin as being against God. He acknowledged it's against God. Number 5, he accepted God's verdict and judgment upon his sin. Well, you say, God, I'm not arguing with you. I really am repenting. You say it's sin. I acknowledge that. And number five, he pled for God alone. He pled for God alone to forgive and cleanse him. I want to give you six truths, and we're then done. Six truths from Psalm 51 that teaches you about you, your sin, and God. Six truths from Psalm 51 that teaches you about yourself, about your sin, and about God. First, The basis of forgiveness is found in God's character. You see that? It's not really something you do, although you come to God. The basis of forgiveness is found in God's character. Number two, all sin is against God. And ultimately, he must pour his wrath out upon that sin. It's a horrifying thing to realize that every single person that has ever been born... Who dies without putting their faith in the only provision God made for their sin, and that's his son, what he did at the cross. Every single one of them must experience the wrath of God throughout the eternal age of ages. Jesus said more about sin than he did, I mean sorry, he said more about hell than he did about heaven when he was here. He came to save man out of hell. But God will and must pour his wrath out upon every single person ever born who does not accept and receive the provision he made in his son, the only one that is available. All sin is against God. Number three, as a sinner, you must side with God against yourself. As a sinner, you must side against yourself with God. Or side with God against yourself. Number four, you are sinful to the very core of your being. So what are you going to offer God? Think about that. Everybody who's in Adam from birth, God says, I've totally rejected anything that come out of Adam. All goodness, all morality, all religious efforts, all sacrifice, I've rejected the whole thing. The only one I will receive is my son and what he did, and I'll give you his life. I'll give you his righteousness, and therefore I can completely forgive you and keep you out of hell and give you eternal life. You are sinful to the very core of your being. That's verse 5. Number 5, God is able and willing. I love it. He is able and willing to completely forgive and cleanse you from all your sin. That's why we have a standing before Him in grace when we have Jesus as our personal Savior. He has completely forgiven you of all your sin the past, the present, and even the future because Christ took your sin. Now, listen, we're not saying then you can just live like you want. No, God says, I discipline my children. So, you need to understand that. We talked about that before. And number six, God's forgiveness and cleansing result in a joyful heart. God's cleansing or his forgiveness and cleansing always result in a joyful heart. Verse eight, make me to hear joy and gladness. And verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. That's how to live the forgiven life. May God bless that in your and my life. And as I said, a lost culture that is rotten to the core. But God's people are to be righteous in the core. Heavenly Father, we thank you for David. Thank you that he shows us how to live the forgiven life. What an incredible guy who really did have a heart after you and father i pray that every person here including myself will fit into that same category that you'll say we have a heart after god thank you for so great a salvation thank you for the joy of salvation for the joy of being completely forgiven and cleansed restored to fellowship filled and empowered by your holy spirit O God, may you continue to build your church. May you call one after another to saving faith. May we, Lord, be that salt and light, and now we see in a rotten culture, may we be that which shines, that people may see you and your righteousness and the provision of salvation you freely bestow upon them if they'll only come, if they'll only come to you in contrition and receive your gift of salvation in your Son. And Father, that brings us now to a very important time in our service when we come to this table and partake of that bread, that broken bread, and that cup, which represents what you provided, the salvation you provided, that by faith we have embraced. And thank you that you cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you. Thank you. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.